0: Hello, my name is Noloazi Tusini I am a journalist, a gender rights activist, a writer and a speaker, um, and a feminist, a queer, black, queer feminist. I am going to share with you today my Ruth First Memorial Lecture, which I gave in August 2016 as the final part of my Ruth First fellowship with Vitz Journalism School. The theme for the Ruth First fellowship that year was violence and rage. And so I decided that as part of my research I would speak to or research violence and rage as it speaks to what I call the 80s cohort or the 80s kids. The reason why I chose to speak to this particular cohort of people is because if you remember in 2016 in South Africa, we were really at the height of the student-led fallist movement. There was a very big ongoing public and national conversation around formerly white or historically white institutions and schools, institutions of higher learning and um, institutions of education in general, and a bigger conversations about um, formerly white institutions in general and how it is that they continued to alienate and isolate um, black people in this country and continued to be violent. A lot of this conversation was led from the point of view of the 1990s cohort, otherwise known as the Born Freeze, who were really the leaders of the student-led movement, Fallist movement. And I thought that there was a bit of a gap in the conversation because there was no one who was talking to the generation of people that came before the 90s cohort. I felt that it was important to speak to this generation not only because I was a member of this generation, but b- simply because I do believe that the 80s kids and the 80s cohort were a bridge between a new democratic South Africa and the South Africa of the apartheid state. And I also wanted to have this conversation because the national discussion around formerly white spaces left me feeling. Perhaps a little bit ashamed and a little bit lost as to my role and place in the violence of formerly white institutions and spaces. Shame because, as a member of the 80s cohort, we were the first group of black children to go into desegregated schools from a very young age and have our entire sort of schooling in formerly white institutions and what was supposed to be multiracial schools. And so we moved through those schools and made our mark as far as I, I believed. And yet it did not seem that these institutions changed. And so I wondered what this meant and what this said about the cohort and our participation and whether or not we had abdicated this important role that we were given as children to be the torchbearers, really, of the Rainbow Nation and of desegregation and of integration. And so that's where the sense of shame came from. But I also felt a little bit lost because as someone who was the first black deputy head girl of my school, the first black head girl of the hostel and the school at the same time, and my various other achievements, I did not feel as though I had completely assimilated to that space and that I had done nothing in that space. And even in my time, there were so many first Blacks, first Black captain, et cetera, et cetera. And we put our names on those walls so that Black children who came after us knew that they belonged in that space. And I was I felt very lost in a narrative that seemed to behave as if we didn't exist. And so I went and I found other 80s kids to find out what they thought. that they feel the same way or not? If they did, why? And if not, why not? And really explore what then quiet violence looks like and quiet rage looks like. What does a rage that doesn't burn look like? And whether or not we could consider ourselves an embodiment of that kind of rage. And this is what I found out.
1: Well, most of that, I didn't n- notice any differences in those spaces because I was pretty oblivious. I was very young. Um, when you're oblivious, it's, it's, it's easy to, to just get along, get by and play by the rules. You know, you don't, this is all you know. So you're assimilating into the space. That's not really built for you. You have to work yourself around it. We didn't know any better Because also our parents were like Go, go there, do as good as them And better And survive and achieve And the older I got You know, you you start to notice The differences Well, there's instances like You're told, no, we don't speak that language here You leave that language at the gate We only speak English This is an English speaking school So we don't want you conversing in languages
2: I, I didn't quite understand that This was a different life. So there were like maybe three kids who were black as well. This was 1994 and white people loved you. You know, it's like, this is your life and you don't quite understand your children, everybody's playing. We had fun. Um, I could be myself, but I'd have to want to be someone else. That's, That's scary. And I think it does a lot. For someone's self-esteem, like I have a very low self-esteem. I remember it was in grade two, actually, when I went to the other school. And I was like, wow, because there were blazers, right? So my parents couldn't afford to get me a blazer, but they didn't say it like that. And I mean, a blazer wasn't a thing you had to have, but you could see, I mean, even
3: the way it is, this big thing that you don't have. I think of myself as an English medium speaker because... I learned the basics of my home language up until five, but not expression. Do you know what I mean? So expression didn't come intuitively to me because it was interrupted by me being forced then to become an English, because we become fluent in English, basically. My, my siblings and I still communicate in English primarily. That's the language that I speak. And we are all black and we're all close up, but like the language that we choose to express ourselves is primarily in English. For a while, I was very deeply resentful. I, I mean, it, it, all of all of these feelings came bubbling up for me when I was in my teens and well into my early twenties. I was very ashamed of that. I just I felt halved. I felt slightly diminished. I, I think now because I know that identity is very complicated, I'm more comfortable with where I am. But when I was younger and I was still trying to figure out and I, I was trying to belong somewhere, I didn't really feel like I belonged anywhere especially in Ngo, where we are, like our section. I think the whole thing made us outsiders.
1: From that first day, they put me on a combi to go to that interracial school in the first place. Because from that day, when most of the children in my street were going to school down the street, and then I was being told that I have to speak English 24-7 so that I could learn the tongue. So I got home and I lost how I could speak my own mother tongue, you know, like fluently. Yes, I can still speak, this is or whatever. But then, like, not in the way that, like, my friends do or whatever. And there was a whole element of, like, I'll only really speak I'm at the time with people that I'm really comfortable with. So that's, like, with my family. When I've got family that's, like, further removed than my nuclear family, I'll usually, what I'll do is I'll actually switch to another language. So if it's one family coming over, I'm going to speak Zulu. And if it's Zulu family coming over, then I'll speak something else. So that, like, straight-up awkwardness doesn't, you know? Because, honestly, at times it kind of feels like like you're a fraud, like kind of like, kind of playing black. Like there was a time when I was sad, but like now it's, it's kind of like, well, we're living. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it, it just feels, it, it is what it is. And I mean, my child is going to school next year. And honestly, I probably, I hope I prepare him, but I probably am going to do the same thing. When you're four, five, six, seven, eight, like, it's just like, there must be something wrong with me in this environment. There's something that I've done wrong, but I'm not sure what. But there's something, and I keep on doing it, <laughs> whatever the something is. You feel never enough. But, like, it was only when, like, I went into varsity where it kind of, like, became a bit more, like, in my face because, um I mean, university people kind of do things and kind of get away with things more often, you know? Where you had, like, black boys signing up for res and they were beaten black and blue because they were first years and apparently it was part of their initiation. But the white kids are all right, you know? And it was like what's going on here type situation. And I'm not gonna lie to you, it shook my world. Absolutely shook me because everything I trusted, everything I'd known, everything that I had almost kind of like esteemed to be on this earth, it changed.
4: It was a really hippie school, you know, hippie Catholic school that embraced sort of all races, all languages. But one moment when like, man, I was I was reading Bigo on the Daily, I was I was deep in it, you know, and this was like that finding of self, you know, and I wanted to create, so we had um, notice boards at school, you know, and I remember um, I had actually started one and I was called into the office, but it was like um, a, a, a notice board on black consciousness, and it really was just about like you know, who's the because here's a new reading, here's what black consciousness is about and stuff, you know, and I remember um, being called into, into the office, you know, and Mr. Northmore was just like, okay, cool, so when we give you the black consciousness board, Who's then going to take care of the White Consciousness Board, type of thing, you know? And that moment for me is just like, that's not the kind of school I thought Sacred Heart had been. You know, when I didn't ever imagine I'd be called into the principal's office, you know, and told to take down um, quotes and, and, and stuff, you know, because... There wasn't a board right next to it about white consciousness, you know. And I think that's maybe a definite or a definitive moment that stood out to then say that actually you and all your blackness is not necessarily fully welcome in the space, you know, only if you're a certain kind of black.
0: From the different narratives that the 80s cohort were at some point in their lives very aware of the deep racial disparities that continue to exist in our society. It is also clear that they were aware of the injustice of this, even at a time when they did not have the language to articulate this feeling. And yet, we continued to languish in white spaces. How? Why? Watching a recent remake of Roots, a particular scene resonated with some of the issues I have been grappling with during this research. Kunta Kante arrives in America and is sold to a white cotton farmer as a slave. When he arrives at the plantation, he immediately starts challenging the space. He starts disrupting the status quo whilst raging at the other slaves for not doing the same. In the last moments of the first episode, Kunta is whipped almost close to death for refusing to surrender his name and heritage as a Mandinka warrior in favor of shrugging on the identity of Toby, a slave at the Waller plantation. In the background, you see the fiddler, who is Kunta's father figure and mentor, urging him to answer to his given slave name just once, begging him to stay alive. Kunta's resolve erodes in favor of his thirst for survival. And finally, when he is asked what his name is, he responds, Toby. After the ordeal, as Kunta is healing from his wounds, the fiddler, who had previously tried to convince Kunta to simply accept his new name, reassures him that his former name and identity will live on inside him, even as the white slave owners believe that they have taken it away. The scene particularly resonated with me because it hit me as a representation of the different ways in which we confront and deal with oppression. On the one hand, the narratives of the 80s cohort shows that they were the subject of the whipping, in the sense that the historically white schools and the language of conciliation was whipping a kind of assimilation to whiteness into them, tearing at their blackness and leaving scars. Having English as one of their primary modes of communication could be read as one of these scars. In this interpretation, perhaps, Their parents or the black community could be read as the fiddler, wanting them to hold on to parts of themselves whilst encouraging and allowing assimilation because they understood it to be key to unlocking access that would in turn open up the glory of the world to them. On the other hand, the 80s cohort themselves could be read as the fiddler, having accessed and lived in white spaces for some time having learned to play the fiddle so well as to elicit comments of you play so well and the born freeze could be read as Kunta actively challenging and disrupting the space in this interpretation the 80s cohort were the first in this space thus knowing and acknowledging the inherent violence of white spaces they are able to give Kunta the 90s cohort a manual on how to survive while simultaneously using the currency and the trust that they have in these spaces to assist and support Kunta in his revolt. The way that you observe the fiddler playing an enchanting tune at the plantation Christmas party to distract his master in order to give Kunta an opportunity to attempt to escape is similar for me to the way that I observed many of the 80s cohort assisting and supporting the Fallist movement. There were eloquent opinion pieces and widespread social media support, the pooling of resources to assist in providing protesters with supplies required to maintain their siege of universities, from water drop-offs to airtime and data transfers, and offers for professional assistance in any capacity. Similar to this, the 80s cohorts I interviewed were in support of the conversation and the issues that were raised by the forest movement, even when they did not agree with their methods. After having watched that episode of Roots, I was drawn to the notion of collaborators versus challengers as a useful tool to explain the actions or non-actions of the 80s cohort even after they began to become aware of racial discrimination around them. In his works, A Bound Man and White Guilt, how blacks and whites together destroyed the promise of the civil rights era, author Shelby Steele describes black Americans as using two types of masks as a means of surviving the horror of institutionalized racism as it exists within American society. He explains that the types of racial masks that blacks choose are related to their life conditions and is a survival mechanism that Blacks have used since the time of slavery. The first mask is one of bargainers. Steele describes them as the go-along to get along. The Black people that never express how they really feel in public. They work hard to ensure that white America is comfortable around them. He identifies Barack Obama and Oprah Winfrey as these kinds of black people. The second mask is one of challengers, whom Steele describes as those that are seen as questioning and confronting immoral authority, forcing change and empowering others to do the same. They work hard to ensure that blacks are comfortable in expressing their opposition to institutionalized racism regardless of whether they step on the white man's toes or not. Steele names Al Sharpton and Bill Cosby as examples. Now this idea is not a new one. It is one that has been used extensively to describe or rather classify African responses to colonization with challenges or resistors associated with heroism, whilst bargainers or collaborators carry the negative connotation of cowardice, submission, and betrayal. In the South African context, we cannot forget the necklacing of apartheid collaborators and izimbimpi, which is why the concept is easily recognizable when discussing resistance to oppression. However, it is also an overly simplistic concept when discussing responses to oppression because people often do not fit into innate binaries, and to try and squeeze them into such is a gross act of dehumanization. Jacob Lamini's book, Askari, which tells the story of freedom fighter turned collaborator, Cloris Sedibe, recognizes collaboration as a much more complex phenomenon. It is an important contribution to a more nuanced conversation about collaborators. It allows us to reimagine them in a way that allows the breadth and depth of humanity we must recognize in ourselves to surface. In particular, it highlights that whilst the colloquial or everyday use of the term collaborate denotes an equal relationship where the participants are partners with a common cause this is often not the case when the collaboration is between the oppressor and the oppressed when i refer to the 80s cohort as collaborators i am tapping into this complexity meaning to convey the fact that i believe that this cohort collaborated under the belief, or at least the hope, that they were participating in a colloquial or the traditional form of collaboration. That belief was buoyant because of the prevailing rainbow nation myth and the language of unity and racial harmony that has only been critiqued on a wild scale in just the past few years. In his review of the book Askari, columnist Fred Kumala writes, at the percussively throbbing heart of the book is a charge that most of us, in varying degrees, were collaborators with the apartheid behemoth, the auger of apartheid and its tentacles in all walks of life. Similarly, we are all touched by the Rainbow Nation project. The 80s cohort, as its first poster children, perhaps more than others, The 80s babies who had the opportunity to go to historically white schools were faced with the non-choice of collaborating with this project or risk rendering themselves a generation without purpose. History tells the story of the choice that we made. We participated so actively in these white spaces that we gained an intimate knowledge of how they worked and how to temporarily because it can only ever be temporary, subvert the anti-black nature of those spaces so as not to suffocate. When examined through the prism of the narratives we have heard today, I cannot accept that these choices were simply cowardice or betrayal, and they were especially not submission. The 80s cohort were not meek in their engagement with whiteness. They were brilliant and resilient and present in a way that demanded that they be seen, that they could not be ignored. As one of the interviews, Yoli said, our presence in those spaces was a disruption. And this is because our presence defied the notion of blackness, of black as suited only for labor, of black as inferior, of black as submissive, of black as mediocre, of black as less than, that had prevailed in these spaces before we arrived there. Equally and importantly, it was not only a disruption of white spaces, but also the black spaces we inhabited. We were so busy proving our humanity to those with whom we were trying to reconcile that some of us became alienated from our own black communities. Can one belong to two places at once? And if you can no longer speak fluently to a place, the way Zugiswa can no longer speak to Zbizana, and I can no longer speak to Guamashu, do you still belong there? And if you can speak fluently to a place, the way that we can speak to historically white spaces, do you belong there? Even when it does not fully reflect or even embrace you, these questions are what the 80s cohort seemed to be grappling with in our conversations about language. There is a very intimate violence in this dichotomy of existing in two worlds and yet not really belonging in either, and so always living in tandem. The white status quo remained the same, but we were different. Contact forced us to reimagine new and different ways of being who we were, new and different ways of being black. We embraced the task we were peculiarly designed by history and by providence to perform. Today, South Africa is faced with a generation that has nothing to prove. We were the beginning of an important conversation about the structure of the reconciliation project. The ones that have come after us are now asking what we never had the space to articulate, which is When your mother can no longer speak to her grandchildren because you sent them to a good school, for whom does this rainbow shine? Thank you.